Welcome to the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences. I'm Dr. Steve Wood. With me is Bill Kanaski. Bill, we're back in the studio, no longer in the, the hotel lobby. So that's good. I had, Crystal Ball I had, will not make a, an appearance today. I had, I had fun with Crystal Ball. <clears throat> yeah. And that, that breakfast burrito was fantastic. It was actually very good. Yes, I'll have to give him that. It's one of the best I've ever had. Yes. So today, what's our what are we looking at today? We're gonna dive back into our viewer mail, right? That we started in that the, the lobby. Yeah, we we got a long we 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 got a long long list of viewer uh, and listener <clears throat> mail that I've been collecting over the last month or so. Um, God, these west West Coast trips are killing me. Yeah. That last that whole jet lag thing, man. Whew. Yeah, you've been. Yeah. Uh, what you were out on the West Coast for about a week, a little bit more than that. Two out of three weeks. Yeah. So. It makes your, your, your head spin, but you know, back to air travel, uh, Steve, I, I want to make something very clear. Okay. Cause yeah, you and I travel uh, a lot. Yeah. Okay. If, if you're a passenger on an airplane <clears throat> and you decide to go number two, okay. In the lavatory on the airplane, you have serious problems. Correct. Okay, I'm very unhappy about this. Okay, because number okay, so okay, so so first off, first off, you you have ruined it for everybody behind you. Okay, let's make that clear. Horrible ventilation, right? It's it's disgusting, and it's not just for the person going in next or the several next people going in next. Every time that door opens, right? I mean, the whole cabin's getting it. <laughs> yeah. it's it's absolutely disgusting it should be banned okay it should be banned i don't care how bad you have to you hold it okay out of respect for your fellow passengers okay yeah that's that's the first point here okay <laughs> this oh i'm not done the the second point here is that if you go number two on the airplane you have made terrible terrible pre-flight choices at the airport restaurant so the the breakfast burrito would not be the top you on your don't list. do the breakfast burrito <laughs> prior to boarding the plane okay but you know they do have restrooms at the airport so again even if you went breakfast burrito or breakfast tacos right Hey, there are ways to take care of this prior to getting on the airplane. Okay, so on my, my flight back from California, there was someone that did not follow protocol, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And it ruined it, ruined it for a lot of people. I'm just going to leave it at that because I don't want to gross anybody out. But I'm just saying it should be banned. And you, you have made terrible, terrible pre-flight choices if that ends up happening on a plane, you hold it, you hold, I don't care how bad it is. You hold it out of respect for your fellow passenger. Am I off on this? Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I, you know, I, I've, I've had that urge before and I choose not to do it for that very same reason. Because no, you hold it. Yeah. You hold yeah. it. Yeah. Out of respect for your fellow passenger. Damn it. God, uh, we need to move on from that because I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah. But that's a good that's a good start. This thing's going in the shitter already. See, there you go. Well, here's the thing. You know, if if it's an hour and fifteen flight, minute flight to Raleigh Durham, that's one thing. 
you know, you got five hours, 45 minutes out to California. <laughs> That's a, and I don't have a mask anymore. So you need a mask. That's the only reason they should have masks now on the airplanes because of that. Or at least a warning sign to your fellow passengers. Good God. Oh, man. Okay, uh, let's. <laughs> yeah. The editor's going to love this one when they go. Oh, like, this is going to be great. The producers love us. Um, let's jump into some more of this uh, viewer mail. Again, you and I have not discussed these. I'm just going to uh, uh, throw these. At, oh, the, okay. This first one is actually uh, very important. It's a new one. Uh, dear guys, uh, people are moving out of blue states into red states. How is this impacting the jury pool? Hmm, very interesting. Yes, yeah. this is definitely definitely something we're seeing, right? In these venues that used to be traditionally a lot more conservative, you're starting to see a lot more, you know, the, the liberal ideally, ide yeah. ideologies. Um, I think, like you said, it, what it does is obviously makes it more problematic to try to think, or, you know, you might have a case in a certain venue and think, okay, I know, or I have the read of how this looks. And and, and not even think to do any sort of mock trial, any sort of focus group, any sort of anything to try to get a sense of what jurors believe, because you think that, you know, that venue is typically conservative, so we don't got to worry about it. But yeah. I think it definitely leads you to have to reconsider what your thought process is as far as how you're approaching a case. And probably going to change your um, voir dire strategy, right? For sure. Asking people, you know, where they're originally from, how long have they lived in the area? Yeah. And, and, and gather more information uh, you know places um i know like i'm here in florida turning very purple in, in, in some areas and uh i know everybody and their brothers moving to, to texas and oh yeah yeah arizona and uh nevada that's right i got it uh, i even i got it here i got to give a little love <laughs> there you to go it. yeah make sure you make sure you say it the right way that's right um yeah a lot of california people moving to nevada uh, Idaho is another one. So you're going to see this continue to happen, I guess, because people <clears throat> are tired of paying ridiculous taxes and amongst other things. But yeah, you're going to have to do things differently uh, in jury selection because uh, that may not show up on a juror information card. I think that's something you're going to have to uh, uh, probably ask in, uh, you know, jurors individually. Um and things like that. And, and then, you know, see, it doesn't necessarily disqualify them, but I think it's something important uh, to be aware of in some of these uh, areas that are more melting pot. You know, if you're in <clears throat> Sioux Falls, Iowa, I, you may be okay, right? Yeah. I think it goes back, actually, another thing that you made me think about it is that whole independent. Right? We've talked about this on the podcast before, yeah, too, yeah. that people are labeling themselves independent. Mm -hmm. Now, that becomes really, really difficult because I've seen it go both ways where independent is actually liberal in the thinking or independent yeah. is very conservative in their thinking. They just don't want to put a label or call themselves Republican for fear of, you know, the negative connotation that's been coming with Republican and kind of the post Trump era. Yeah. So I think that's another thing to keep an eye on. And I think the, the, this kind of the basic, well, why did you move from California to Texas? You know, and, right. and may, Hey, for all I know, they're a conservative, like, okay, I've had enough of this California craziness. Right. And they want to get, versus yeah I, I don't know yeah maybe yeah. this one but, but i think you have to ask and dig deep and while those may not be the most comfortable questions um kind of necessary when picking yeah. your jury all right next one um guys can a middle eastern defendant uh specifically a middle eastern uh physician who's a defendant 
win a trial with a predominantly white jury in a rural area. You know, Steve, this comes up uh, a lot. You and I work um, all over the country. Mm -hmm. uh, we work in several uh, rural areas. Um, it's There's some crazy stat, like 40 to 43% of uh, physicians <clears throat> in this country are foreign-born. And a lot of these physicians, uh, for training purposes, um, you know, and end up in a rural area. And uh, I know we do a lot of work in uh, the state of Indiana yep. in which uh, there, you know, I'm working with, I'm prepping docs for trial from Syria, Iran, Iraq, Somalia. I mean, and they, they, um, they're not in front of a group of their peers. Um, I'll tell you that. Where are some of the challenges you've had? Well, I think the answer is yes, because they yeah. do win. They do win yeah. a lot. How, how do you approach your witness prep differently with folks like that? Because I because I I know there's there's some anxiety that they have going into the quote unquote legal system and their their fears are often very irrational. Yeah, I think with that, to your point, yes. And yes, we have had success. You and I have had success, full defense verdicts with foreign born physicians uh, just recently we've had some yeah. and what kind of how i approach it is i spend a lot of time just just working with the witness talking with them and mm -hmm. you know getting them comfortable with the process getting them comfortable to understand you know all the different aspects of it especially at trial getting them mm -hmm. comfortable about talking to talking to jurors and you know sometimes what i do is is also kind of keep their answers short concise like we typically do um, but yeah. try to go through when we're doing mock questions and kind of let them answer and, and then try to synthesize them a little bit better so that they get comfortable with, with the language that's being used. Cause a lot of times what I see the, mis the mistakes or the, the confusion or the frustration comes in them sort of translating the question in their head into their own language and then yeah. giving a different answer because the words that are being used by opposing counsel or even by their own counsel you know, either it's something that's, it's, it's not a word that's, you know, familiar to them. So they try to, mm -hmm. to try to change it, or they try to use a word, a different word um, that's not appropriate, but they don't think anything of it because to them, it seemed appropriate, mm -hmm. but in a legal setting, it's, it's not appropriate. So I think it takes a lot of care and understanding to the challenges where they're coming from. And when they give what might be a poor answer, talking to them about mm -hmm. why they did it and then kind of dissecting it more and, and a lot of times I found they said, oh, I didn't understand what you meant by whatever this word was. I thought it was yeah. something else. Yeah, I worked with a witness last week uh, who, um, and everybody makes mistakes at, at deposition. <clears throat> I did not meet her before a deposition. So this is just standard trial prep. And, and uh, she was born in Eastern Europe. I think moved over here in the, like the mid nineties. Um, during our witness prep, she was convinced that because she had made mistakes in her dep, that she would be arrested, uh, tried criminally, and be thrown in jail. Wow, that's what she she that's what she thought. And I was almost having panic attacks. And it took two hours to get through this. And finally, it was the well, where I come from, you know, that's what happens. Yeah, <laughs> like that's like I don't know any other way. And she had never testified in the American court system before. So I think looking culturally, I mean, look at a place like Syria, where a lot of a lot of physicians from the Middle East. Wow. I mean, they're coming from places where, you know, the court system, you know, you you steal something, they 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 chop your goddamn hands off. Yeah. I mean, 
So yeah, I think you have to address those things because there's a lot of fear um, um, that they can have, and that's going to come out in their testimony and, and, and non-verbal. I mean, she was bouncing off the walls, bouncing off the wall. I mean, spoke a mile a minute and it was like, stop. So I had a, it took two hours to get it through her head and then she was fine and she performed really, really well. But there was like this barrier there that was strictly cultural with a lot of irrational, you know, fears and beliefs. So the answer is yes. Um, yeah. Uh, in fact, the vast majority of foreign born uh, physicians uh, win uh, at trial uh, and do really well. But again, you know, they have to go through the witness training system. They're going to have to learn, you know, about jury psychology, how jurors make decisions, you know, things like body language. They, they're going to have, they're starting from scratch usually. Um, but the answer is yes, they can. And they already do. All right. Question number three, how do I mitigate damages at trial on a case where my client is admitting liability? Never a good place to be. No. I mean, I think one of the one of the biggest things that we see is is you have to be able to show reasonable and rational numbers that you're putting yes. out there, right? If you're gonna you're gonna be discussing damage awards, you're gonna have to. I mean, I think it goes back. A lot of times we see jurors, for the most part, will think that plaintiff counsel's numbers are, are too high, and defense counsel numbers are too low, mm-hmm. in in that you're lowballing uh, the plaintiff. But I think if you can allow or add context in there about why your numbers are reasonable or rational and be able to back it up rather than just say, you know, oh, I think it should be five million instead of 15 million with no really good explanation about where the yeah. different p- pieces and parts are of the actual life care plan or all the any other information mm-hmm. that's being offered up by opposing counsel, mm-hmm. you know, then you, you're not in a good spot if you're not pointing those things out. But if I think if you can mm-hmm. do that where we I've seen success is, like I said, almost dissecting them and saying, okay, here, here's one area. Here's another area. Here's another area. Here's all the reasons why we believe it's too high, but at the same time, here's why we believe it's reasonable and fair to the plaintiff as well. Yeah. I, that's, I think that's step two. I think step one is you had better start attacking the plaintiff's damages model and the, in the first 30 seconds of your opening statement. Yeah. And show why that's unreasonable, illogical lottery ticket type stuff. You, you can't wait on that particularly the savvy plaintiff attorney because they're going to come out wanting to do what they they want to anchor damages right yeah, yeah. and so you, know, you could say all you know reasonable and fair and all that stuff but if you don't have another number but you know you're going to get crushed if you have another number usually but you you need to you really need to show why the number presented by plaintiff's counsel is um um uh, absurd absurd is the word i like yeah. Uh, we've used that at trial to say th- that number is absurd. It's not fair. It's not reasonable. And use use the judge's instructions. Hey, this is why you're here. This is this is not about lottery tickets or making people rich. It's about fair and reasonable judges. And by the way, I think you have to show you know, hey, five million dollars is a lot of money, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, and the other side's asking for a hundred, and that's what that's what the plaintiff bars. Again, hats off. Oh, by, welcome, plaintiff attorneys. <laughs> welcome you've been all over my linkedin page welcome um yeah hats off to them because they're they're asking for these crazy numbers betting betting the farm that the defense don't that won't know how to handle that that they won't counter anchor that they won't you know take the right approach and they roll the dice and uh i mean you've seen it work in our mock trials right 
Yeah. And I think with that said, actually, like you said, hats off to the plants bar. A lot of times they've mocked it multiple times. Yes. They, to, they to, know to, the to, number. Correct. <laughs> they've gone up and they say, oh, you know what? Okay. Well, it's 50. That didn't, that didn't inflame any jurors. Let's see if we can go up to 65. Okay. That, I mean, that's a little bit hot. Okay. 85. That pissed them off. All right. We know we can't do 85, yeah. but the defense, a lot of times we see when we talk about <laughs> you know, alternative damages, it, it's kind of like close your eyes and throw a dart on what your number is going to be. I think you need to put some thought into what's going to be too low because the last thing you want to do is be perceived as lowballing the plaintiff. And then it, that pisses jurors yeah. off too. And then all of a sudden now they're not using your alternative damages number because it's <laughs> it, theirs is absurd that your alternative damage number is absurd too. Yeah. You, you got, you got to test this stuff. And so I think it was 2020, 21, um, the, like the largest civil verdict that came out of uh, Cook County, you know, say Chicago, um, I think it was against the airport against the O'Hare. There was a uh, overhang that collapsed. Oh yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And there's led to a, a think quadriplegic or something like that. Um, I think it's the final verse, like $135 million. And uh, you know, I used to live in Chicago. I know a lot of people in Chicago. I know a lot of attorneys and the defense counsel I talked to up there was that the plaintiff's counsel, I won't mention his name in that case, but he's very, very good. Uh, and he told everybody, after that verdict, I mocked try this thing seven times, seven times because I needed to know what the number was, and I knew one fifty was too high. That was pissing people off, and then seventy five wasn't enough, and I I just kept playing with it, and that's what they did. I don't and I don't think the defense actually counter anchored in that case, from my understanding. So lesson learned, but you know, yeah, you can mitigate. There's a way to do it, uh, but I think jury research uh, is going to play a big. Um, part of that okay uh question four should i ask the judge to show a short clip of the plaintiff's day in the life video during jury selection you bet your ass yeah holy yes. shit <laughs> yes yeah 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 i had a i had a case in wisconsin outside of milwaukee in which it, it was a it was a it was it was a uh, the it was a the death of a um of a of a of a baby and uh there were um crime scene um this this death happened at home um and there were there were crime scene uh pics of how they found this this poor kid right who died in this crib so you can't do the math on kind of you know how that happened and um i'm sitting there you know, assisting on jury selection and we have these pictures and this defense attorney's terrified, but we are halfway through jury selection and no one's talking. No one's every, Oh yeah, I can be fair. I can be fair. I can be fair. And he's trying like, well, you know, there's going to be some images in this case going to be very disturbing. You okay with that? Oh yeah. I'm, I'm okay with that. And he looked at me during one of the breaks and I said, you better show those damn pictures. The judge gave us, and the judge said, you can show two pictures. There's, 50 pictures right you can show two we showed two pictures half of the half of the veneer rose their hand immediately and said i can't be on this case after seeing that picture i i can't i can't we had people crying people because we showed the picture yeah and i've had other cases where it's okay there's this 30 minute day in the life video we want to play seven minutes of this because we your honor we don't think we don't think we can adequately assess these jurors right until they see part of this and um 
it's worked pretty much every time to really get at the bias. Cause if you just tell people, yeah, you're going to see some pretty bad stuff. Are you okay with that? 99 of hundred people are gonna be like, yeah, I think I can hack it. Then you actually show them a little bit. Um, now you're going to get some pushback from plans council. But um, I, I mean, I think that's really important because if, if they see that stuff during opening statement, I mean, Steve, you're a psychologist. You, you can't unsee that stuff, right? No, no, you can't. <laughs> and, and like you said, then all the, now, now you're highly emotional, right? Now your jurors are highly emotional. And we know yeah. highly emotional jurors, just like highly emotional witnesses don't make yeah. good decisions, right? They no. start focusing on heuristics and these mental shortcuts and they stop paying attention to the evidence and they're thinking more emotionally than they are rationally mm. so i agree i think that's a good good tactic because <laughs> as you said it's all you all can always say that yeah it'll be fine i'll be fine i'll be fine until you're actually yeah. in, in it and you see it or um there's been times where you know the plaintiff attorney be like well i yeah my my client you know who's in the wheelchair can't show up they can't be there for jury selection they have a doctor point yeah my ass right no you, you're on no i want i want this person in the damn wheelchair in the courtroom while i do voir dire because you, you know, you wheel them during during opening statement. You, you can't do that. So right. you can't. I, I see a lot of defense counsel. They fear the bad stuff, and they think like the jury's going to be poison once they see the bad. No, no, it's going to be the opposite. You're going to be able to detect the people that can't handle that stuff, right? So can you just talk a little bit, Steve, about this whole? Well, if they hear bad stuff during jury selection, it's going to poison the jury. That's not true. No, I, I think you know as far as. You, you want to be able to identify your care bearers. You want to be able to identify your highly emotional people in jury selection. And, you know, a lot of times those, those types of people are always eager to please. And if, if the judge says, you know, you, can you be fair and impartial? And they, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Even if, <laughs> if even if they initially say it maybe too, you know, they're kind of wavering a little bit when they're talking to a plaintiff or defense counsel, the judge steps in and says, you know, but you can be fair and impartial, right? then they're always, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause they will be more, they'll defer to that kind of authority of the judge. So, you know, it can become difficult to be able to identify, to be able to strike because what they've said, as far as being fair and impartial, what they've said about being able to set their bias and sympathies aside is all essentially lip service. And by doing yeah. what you're talking about, you're kind of forcing the issue in those people who are the emotional care bearers you're going to, they're going to, they're going to out themselves because they're not going to be able to withhold that emotional feeling. Cause that's just the way they are, you know, yeah. right, wrong, or indifferent. It's not that it's bad. It's just, that's who they are. And that's who you need to identify. Yeah, no, I agree. All right. Next question. Uh, from your San Diego podcast, you stated how you like breakfast burritos. What about breakfast tacos? Steve, you a fan of the breakfast taco. I'm going to like me listen. some good breakfast tacos. Yeah, Steve, I found those to be a little bit more messy, particularly if you're going to put like the salsa in there. Yeah, yeah. I, I like me some breakfast taco. Don't get me wrong, um, but I think on the on the messy scale, a little bit, a little bit. Eh, I don't know. You don't, you want to get that stuff on your clothes? What do you, you think? It's a little too messy. Nah, I think it's all right because it's a little bit smaller, a little bit easier to handle, a little bit, you know. But I, what I will tell you though is is. I hate potatoes though in, in a, in a breakfast. Yeah, let, let's talk about this. Let's, let's talk about this because this was on my list uh, to talk about. We were at the San Diego uh, airport. Um, you are okay. So you're anti tater tot is pretty much your stance. Is that, yeah, that's your testimony. That is my right? testimony. Yeah. Um, 
I, in fact, I was just there uh, again this week and I had this, I was going to send you a picture. Uh, the tater tots are fan. What, what, okay. Everybody likes tater tots, Steve. You've been eating them since you've been four years old. Everybody likes tater tots. What, what in the world is wrong with you? What, what do you have against tater tots? I think a lot of times it ends up being, I will say though, that those tater tots I didn't end up eating at the airport were pretty good because they actually uh, had a good uh -huh. crunch to them. Yeah. I mean, it's just the Crispy. soggy, gross ones that we used to get when we were, you know, at the cafeteria. In the cafeteria? They like broke apart on you and it was just- In the fourth you go to grade cafeteria? In, <laughs> yeah. You yeah. go to dip it in the ketchup and they break and crumble apart on you. And so, no, I'm, I'm, I'm generally, I like, I like some French fries, mashed potatoes, but outside of that, I can take or leave potatoes. How about the breakfast potatoes? The, the chopped up in the little squares? I find oh. that they, they get overcooked a lot. Like nope, you could break one of your teeth in half on those. Yeah, don't like those either. Yeah, I thought like to pass and maybe get a side of fruit. You know me, yeah, healthy guy. Uh, I thought that was a. I thought I think that's a very very important uh, question though. Uh, okay, uh, next question number six. Uh, in Vordir, what do I do with jurors who are quiet and won't say much? This happens a lot. Oh yeah, you gotta start asking them questions. I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> you just have to directly ask them questions. Yeah. Uh, and that's I, a lot of time, you know, I, I did a, I did a, a solo podcast on this on jury selection. And I think too often a lot, you know, there gets to be focus on six or seven specific jurors in, in the in the venire in that little section. You know, if you fill in the box with 12 and, and you're focused on six of them and there's some other ones who aren't really saying much. You know, I think a lot of times the attorneys are just talking to the people who are talking the most and then they almost leave alone those people who haven't said anything. Yeah. And my suggestion is always, I haven't heard much from the, you know, juror three, seven and nine, like we need yeah. to ask them specific questions and, and call them out. You know, a lot of times, and it's not, it's not because they don't have anything to say. It's just, obviously a lot of people just aren't very comfortable talking in public and you just have to force the issue. And a lot of times you'll end up finding out they're actually articulate and intelligent. And yeah. the reason why they're not saying anything is just because that's just not their personality. They're more mm -hmm. introverted than extroverted. Yeah, but you better not let them get away with it. No. And just be quiet because you never know what they're going to be like. They may no. be quiet during jury selection, but they may. I mean, we do mock trials where we, we've seen we've seen jurors where they're very meek, sometimes even, you know, nodding off during the mock trial. And then they get into deliberations and they're like animals. Yeah. They're out of control. We had, we had a guy <laughs> once, I, uh, I think you and I were both on this project. We had a guy once who didn't take a single note, looked like he wasn't even invested. He got into the, the deliberation room yeah. and the guy had like every piece of information. You yeah, know, memorized. didn't take notes. Yeah. And he's the and four even person. The people who took notes were asking him questions because he had had it. So those, yeah, like you said, those, those people who don't look like they're engaged are, could be dangerous yeah. one way or the other. No, you're right. Okay, last question. Um, I'm going to get in trouble for this one. I can tell you okay. that right now. Um, because I, don't know, I I have thoughts on this, um, and this is very this is a this, this is a very important uh, question. Uh, a lot of jury selection questions um, during jury selection. Uh, juror social media information useful or a complete distraction? Mm. Uh, don't know, let me I, talk, I, don't I, let me talk first on this one. I know I know where you're going to go with this. Um, I you think, know exactly where I'm going to go. <laughs> I think. I think that there's, there's some give and take to this. I, I see where you're coming from, but I think my thought is that there's some value in the social media as far as whether or not someone posts a lot or whether or not someone posts a little, what they're posting on, the language that's in the actual posts, 
you know, the pictures that they're posting. I think it does give you some insight into jurors, especially like you said, those ones who aren't saying much or, you know, who you can't get a good read on. I think sometimes yeah. that social media can help inform that decision a little bit more. <clears throat> With that said, I know where you're going to come from and I'll tee it off for you. <laughs> it does become an, it does can become a distraction because now all of a sudden you're so worried about looking at the social media profiles, trying to dig into the social media profiles and stuff. And you have the juror sitting right in front of you and you're trying to do that while you're trying to help, you know, pick the jury. And now it's too many things going on at one time and you're splitting your time between these two different things. And you're not able to really be, you know, present in the moment and focusing on what it is the juror is actually saying. So I think there's, there's kind of a, you know, there's there's a happy medium that you need to find because it can be distracting. Can you tell our audience, um, what social desirability bias is and how I think that's a pretty common occurrence um, on social media posts with many people. Yeah. So idea of social desirability bias uh, is, you know, essentially what ends up happening is when you get responses from people, they will often give you a response that puts them, shines a, a, a light on them that's a little bit better than, than they would really have or they may hide some thoughts and feelings that they typically have because they know that those thoughts or feelings may be frowned upon. Prime example, obviously, is you know one of the big things about Trump back when people were doing polls on Trump. I think a lot of people knew it was socially desirable to not say that you supported Trump. So when people asked, you either downplayed it or you just outright lied about your support for Donald Trump. But then what ended up happening in the voting box you went in head and no one was there putting their eyes yeah. on you to judge you for your opinions. And they went ahead and voted for Trump. Uh, so I think that is what happens in, in jury selection. And I think to your point, what you were talking about on, on Facebook, a lot of times people always like to post about, you know, how great their lives are when we know behind closed doors, things are in shambles. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I largely, if I didn't, if it. I didn't explain that fully, I'm sure someone will, make a comment in the comment section. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, I, yeah, <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not going to open up that can of worms. Um, yeah. I find it to be distracting um, there. I, I don't find it to be predictive of outcome either um, yet. I think it's still very new. Um, if you have it great, if you don't have it, I don't think it kills you if you don't have that information. Yeah. Um, but it, particularly if, if you're in federal court, you know, you got 30 minutes each of what I, I don't get, I ain't looking up people's Facebooks. No, 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 no. There's like five questions I need answers to. And I don't care what they've tweeted lately. I, I need, you know, I, I need other answers besides, you know, what they think of, you know, Elon Musk. So, um, so yeah, I think, I think the verdict's still out on social media uh, data. I think the, I think where I see the problem is, is that armchair psychologists, otherwise known as trial attorneys? <laughs> you see what I did there? Yeah. Um, they highly value that information and start making these incredible assumptions, right? Um, whereas you and I see it and take it for what it's worth. And I think that could be, uh, I, I think attorneys start to like or dislike jurors based on what maybe they're posting on social media. I think that's very dangerous because of that social desirability. But I think people are going to be more authentic in the courtroom than they are on Twitter. Oh, uh, yeah, I would or, say or that Instagram. 100%. I mean, yeah. 
common conversations all the time, right? About Instagram filters and this, that, and the other, right? About everybody trying to yeah. change the perceptions and it look better than they really are. All righty, let's wrap this up. And we're going to do another uh, right after this. We're doing, uh, an, this will be part three of, because I got a ton of questions, man. So, uh, but we'll cut this one off. I think these are really good questions. Got some more really interesting uh, ones coming up on uh, our next session. Sounds good. All right, this has been another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences. That's it. <laughs>